Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty podcast. My name is Nate Thurston, and of course, I must always mention that Charles is not here. He's on his way back from Italy. It doesn't seem like he's going to be stuck, so we'll be going back to normal here pretty soon. But today, I've got a great interview with John Vogel, who is an economist. He's a cryptocurrency enthusiast. He is a musician. He's a former state chair for Young Americans for Liberty. We have a lot of stuff that we could talk about in this interview. And we're going to be kind of jumping right into it. I will say it was very, very easy conversation. As soon as we got on the Zoom call, we just started our conversation and I hit record and it just went on from there. It was, it was really fun. I mean, we talked about we talked about cryptocurrencies, maybe a little bit of inside stuff on some trading, but not too much. We talked about music. Uh, we, we talked a lot about the economy overall, about monetary policy, all types of stuff that I know you guys are going to be interested in. So I'm very excited to bring you the interview. Before we get into that, I'm going to have to tell you about BetterHelp. Make sure you go to betterhelp.com slash GML. If you are having any issues that you feel like you need to talk to someone about, if you feel like you're not as happy as you could be, you're not getting as much of that meaning in your life as you could be, then go to betterhelp.com slash GML. This is an app. It's a website. And what, what they do is you go on there, they pair you up with a licensed therapist, you answer a few questions, and they pair you up with someone who works the best for you. And of course, you can always pick a different one if you want to. You can talk to them over the app, uh, you can text back and forth, you can do video chats, you can do phone calls, all sorts of stuff like that. So listen, this is a very, this is a very important thing. You know, if, if uh, you can have a lot of great stuff going on in your life, and you're, if you're not there mentally... If you're still dealing with depression or anxiety or you got relationship issues, all of those things can can really mess it up. And what I really want to recommend is that you don't waste any time dealing with those things when maybe talking to someone could, could really help you out. So if you go to betterhelp.com slash GML, you get 10% off your first month. This is way cheaper than actually going into an office. Plus, you don't actually have to leave your house. So it's a lot better deal for sure. Okay, betterhelp.com slash GML. And like I said, I just kind of hit record when we started this Zoom call, and it was so easy for us to talk about everything. We just started talking. So I'm going to be dropping you guys right into the conversation, and I hope everyone enjoys. Thank you. I was going to ask, what kind of stuff are you into now? Yeah, so um, funny enough, I listen to a lot of rap now um, because I think that genre is doing a lot of new and interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then additionally, I just listen to a lot of, you know, indie alternative music. I still listen to a lot of Prague. Um, my band blank slate is kind of like an alternative band of sorts. And then I've just kind of been, you know, 
chilling out and, and writing music at my own pace. And that's been some kind of weird, like pop hybrid of sorts too. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny cause I feel like a lot of people that are big into metal, that it doesn't always stick for long periods of time. It's something I frequently revisit and enjoy, but as far as creating music, it's just, there's more refreshing things out there in my opinion. That's kind of how I got to, I mean, that's, that's what I got started on, which I feel like is pretty common for a lot of younger people to get started on for sure. And then I moved into the band that I was in for a long time. It's more pop music. And uh, I mean, we had a female singer and literally playing like pop rock, very different from when I was singing and screaming in in like a screamo band uh, back in the day. So the stuff definitely, definitely changes over time. Yeah, um, I definitely. So obviously, I'm familiar with you and Charlie just in the Liberty Circles. I have been for for quite a while, probably, you know, kind of the start of this past election cycle. Um, and the I then kind of did a little bit of stalking to see your your involvement with Darling Great and all that stuff. So that <laughs> yeah. was cool. Um, again, just like, you know, didn't really know that was a thing that you did. And it seemed like you guys had a lot of success while that was something you were doing. So that's awesome. We uh, yeah, it was um, it was pretty tough you know how you know how it is with a band like uh, you have some you can get some cool stuff going on and not everyone sees all the really tough terrible times that are going on behind it you know to make all that happen so when i look back on it now i i think about yeah that we did some cool stuff when we were in it it was uh it was a shit show man i mean it it was uh, we were lucky that any of the stuff ever happened you know we were a day away from from living in a van down by the river and that that's just kind of that's kind of how it felt that whole time um i wish i would have taken more time to appreciate the stuff that we were doing then uh because that you know i i could have i could have been having a better time you know and so i was watching the money and watching the watching the growth and everything and everyone else was having a good time and like oh hey we're uh we're on this island out in the Indian Ocean. Let's have a good time. Let's have fun. And I was like doing spreadsheets, figuring out how long the you know money was going to last for the whole thing. And uh, and so I, I definitely that's my biggest advice for everyone when I talk to people is to uh, stop and smell the roses every once in a while and and uh, enjoy it for sure. Yeah. And, you know, even the bands that have, you know, quote unquote, made it and, you know, have a good following or touring frequently, like this is the story that you hear with them. You know, uh, there's people that are on successful touring bands and successful labels that are couch hopping when they're home from tour. That's -hmm. that's not at all uncommon. Um, And, you know, my my band isn't, unfortunately, our our very first tour was lined up April 2020 and that got uh, wrecked real bad. Um, But I think one thing that we can be thankful for is the fact that all of us are pretty business oriented. And even though we kind of have, you know, a small following and and all of that, you know, we've been running at break even for the past few years. And I know a lot of bands just generally don't have that general business sense and they're focused purely on growth, which is great. But if you can't, you know, quote unquote, take profit every once in a while, yeah. then, you know, <laughs> that, that growth comes at a cost. Dude, running it, uh, running at break even as a band sounds like success to me. I mean, that's a, that's a tough <laughs> thing to do for sure. Um, and, and you just got to make sure that you take all the opportunities, all the networking opportunities that you can. Like when I think back on it right now, cause obviously I don't do that stuff anymore, but when I think back on it, it was all the little little networking things we did and made a random friend here and a random friend at this place. And then, Oh, that person knows someone who, who does this, or that person knows uh, one guy we just randomly met one time. Oh, he knows someone who works at Apple 
and uh, they can help us, you know, get on some of the front pages of iTunes and stuff. Or we met a guy and his uh, his brother owns Sirius XM. And so, you know, he, he can help us out. And and uh, there, and you just got to take all those opportunities, do all the networking that you can. One thing I was going to ask you about um, with the COVID thing going on with all with no touring, obviously, or I mean, hardly anyone is doing any shows or anything. Uh, what kind of pivot have you guys made? Like, are you more active on social media? Or are you still trying to record and release things? How's, how's that been? Yeah, so uh, pros and cons, right? So when when the lockdowns first started, we actually wrote, recorded, produced, and released an EP without having had seen each other that entire time, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, the writing process was just, you know, me laying down some guitar tracks. I would send that to our drummer to program some drums on, and then uh, Hannah, our vocalist, would lay down the bass lines and, and sing over it. And once we had demos we were happy with, we did that whole process over again, mixed it and, and got it out. Awesome. Super cool. Um, since then, I my education and my career in economics and finance a little more. And Hannah's actually gone on to join a band called Spirit Breaker, who signed to a solid state uh, records. Um, and they nice. actually just released their debut album, Kiranata, um, two weeks ago. So uh, if you're into metal music, definitely go and jam that. Uh, they're doing awesome. So um, Blink Slate right now, like it's just kind of a, we'll revisit it when the time makes sense, right? Um, I don't think there's any sense in trying to force shows right now or anything like that. Um, so things have just been pretty chill on that front for the most part, if I'm being honest. Um, now that's opened up other opportunities for us in that space. Like I said, Hannah's, Hannah's joined a new band. I'm working on my own music. I'm, I'm getting uh, prepped to get a YouTube channel going. So that's all cool stuff. Um, but yeah, COVID definitely uh, shook our roadmap up a little bit. Like I said, we, we were going to tour the, the month uh, after COVID hit. So yeah, uh, got, got really unlucky there. Um, but you know, it's just how life works out and you got to, uh, deal with what you're handed and, and make the best out of it. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that with what, even with what my band was doing, I'm pretty sure the whole COVID thing would have, would have finished us off regardless, even if we already hadn't stopped playing by that time. Uh, I just don't see how we, uh, we would have made it through that. I mean, I guess we could have pivoted over to, uh, putting out some, you know, minute long videos on TikTok and tried to grow a following like that. Uh, but I don't know what we would have done. Have you always had that kind of, uh, that mentality where uh, something bad happens, we'll just push through it. It'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, especially in this day and age, I feel like that's kind of your only option if you want to be successful is handling that, uh, that adversity in a proactive way, you know, um, I'd say looking back on the past couple of years, nothing's gone the way necessarily I wanted it to, or I had exactly planned, but it, you know, ends you up in a place that sometimes is better. Um, so, you know, I, I think that when you look at it that way and you say, okay, how do we make the best out of the situation and turn it into an opportunity that's been doing that consistently is, you know, how you kind of find success and, and pave your own path in life the way that it was, you know, intended to be, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, did um how long have you been into the cryptocurrency mar the markets are you actually trading do you just are you really enthused about the idea of cryptocurrencies in general tell me about your uh, kind of backstory on that yeah so you know i've been investing for a while but uh being a college student and investing 
that didn't mean a whole lot mm. for, for the time, you know, throwing a couple hundred bucks in when I had it and just checking it once every few weeks and being like, Oh, cool. You know, mm. I have more money than I did. We you know when I put in sweet, <laughs> um, I started investing much more heavily in the crash of 2020. Um, as soon as the fed started doing some weird stuff with COVID, um, I, I knew it was go time. So I quote unquote bought the dip. Um, and then it was probably like, Christmas time 2020 that I'd say I started trading and looking into that. Um, and you know, I, I'm not a fan of gatekeeping in most circumstances, but I'd say trading is the one place that it's probably good to do that because people will lose money unless mm -hmm. they really take the time to learn how this market works and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, cryptocurrency is my biggest hold by far and away. Um, I, I think a pretty large amount of my, my uh, portfolio is cryptocurrency. Um, and, you know, I, I'm young and I, I can handle the risk and I'm trading it actively. So things have gone pretty well for me. So I've, I've been trading for, yeah, what is that? About eight or nine months so far. Um, I really started penciling in a lot of wins in this bear market when everybody, you know, thought cryptocurrency's dead. I'm not going to put any more money in. You know, I'm scared to, to put money in because what if it goes down further? And that's when I took the time to really accumulate and swing trade and things like that. And I definitely ended up better because of it. So um, cut my teeth in that bear market. And now I'm feeling a lot more confident. It's uh, it's funny to watch people react when markets start heading down. That they, they think as soon as something turns around that it, that it's over, it's done, and it really shows. Uh, one, you can see fear in people. You see how fear drives things. You can also see a lot of people involved that really just don't know what they're doing at all. They haven't taken the time to research anything. You see that uh, Bitcoin is down. However, I don't know how far it went down, uh, but you know it pulled back to pretty good support levels and gave some really good opportunities for buying in. But everyone on the way down is like, oh, this is over. This is going to go back down to nothing. I'm like, no, markets uh, markets pull back. It's it's okay that things pull. Actually, it's healthy that markets pull back, to tell you the truth. You you want to establish a new base of support before you continue another leg up. And um, I don't know, are you are you pretty bullish long-term on this, by the way? Like, you, you think Bitcoin and all this is going to be the, the next thing? Yeah, so it, it depends on on what your time frame is by b bullish, obviously. Yeah. Um, in, in the long decade horizon, I could not be more bullish. Um, however, I think right now this cycle peak is going to end in what we would consider the equivalent of the dot com crash. Um, and so, being an economist, there's a few things in this cryptocurrency space that I kind of think I have a perspective on that maybe not everybody that's just focused on trading has. Um, and the first of which is, yes, we have this, you know, this cycle, um, this four-year cycle kind of pattern that's established with Bitcoin, um, and that means that we can, you know, and not saying that this is what's going to happen. Just you know, previous mm -hmm. data suggests this is that sometime in the next probably six to nine months, we are going to enter a very long bear market with a uh, pretty substantial and scary capitulation, if you have previous data to, to make those assessments. Um, now, my concern is that anything that does not have a use case is not going to recover from that bear market. Same with the dot-com crash, right? Uh, the internet's the future. All these tech companies that are sprouting up are super exciting. They're going to lead the charge on, you know, this this next technological revolution. But everybody's investing in things having no clue what the actual use case is. 
So when that dot-com crash happened, the only things to recover from that dot-com crash were essentially the, the businesses and technologies that were actually pushing, you know, the, the growth of the internet forward, the adoption of the internet forward. So that's what I anticipate to happen uh, for this upcoming crash is that a lot of these altcoins that people are all hyped on are going to die and take decades, if not, you know, or, you know, they won't come back at all, right? It's just the, the recovery is going to be, you know, very sloppy. That's my guess. But, you know, if you're investing in things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, disregard what I'm saying right now. I think those, you know, they'll go in their bear market and then four years later, they're going to be ripping and rolling again. So what uh, what percentage of that of the crypto market do you think actually has a good use case? I mean, when I think through there, I'm a Bitcoin, Ethereum, I actually think... <laughs> You know, I hate I hate saying it, but if uh, if big if big companies like Tesla and if Elon Musk continues with the whole Dogecoin thing, they could actually have uh, a, a use if they're going. You know, aside maybe the memes, a, the use case. Aside, that's that's yeah. totally possible. Maybe but this, then but there's... If they start accepting that as a payment, um, it, I, I could see it actually having more of a use than a lot of the other coins. You know. Yeah. Um... I definitely don't disagree with you. I, I don't know if Doge is dead, but there's, you know, probably 700 Doge supplements out there with Shiba, Nikita, and, you mm -hmm. know, however many other ones that have like infinite supply and market caps that you can't calculate. Probably not going to stick around. Um, personally, small projects um, that I'm very bullish on. Um, I really like Dot. Um, I DCA into DOT. Uh, Kraken actually pays 12% APY to stake DOT. So um, okay. that's one that I'd highly um, recommend. Uh, and, you know, ADA is a good one, obviously. That one's ripping, though. I'm definitely not going to be looking to, to enter any new money into that one um, until we kind of establish some new support here and, and see where it's actually going. Um, and then uh, I like Adam a lot too, uh, mostly because that one uh, you can stake on Coinbase and and it pays pretty good dividends. But you know, those are kind of the main alt holds that I hold. I'd say a substantial amount of the rest of the stuff. I'm just kind of dinking and dunking, you know, going in for a few weeks, month until I I have a profitable exit, and then accumulating additional Bitcoin, Ethereum, or DOT with those profits. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you're like me right now, but with what what I see with uh. Well, the market overall, I feel like Bitcoin just had a big run. I think they're going to pull back just a little bit. You know, we just came off 50,000. I think it's going to come back down to 40 more than likely if we're going to continue another uh, another leg up. But um, one thing I was wondering is since you're in economics, obviously, uh, does that aid in how you feel about the crypto market? You know, do you is that you like that more than our dollar? Um, yeah, absolutely. But there's considerations that I think a lot of people need to be, um, you know, take into account. Um, so I'd say, first of all, my economics uh, knowledge has helped a lot with learning trading very quickly. Um, I was I was trading, you know, at a profit probably about four months after I decided to get into it. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, my mentor pretty much was just like, hey, this is just economics playing out in real time. It's mm -hmm. supply and demand playing out in real time. And if you can, you know, quantify that properly to the point that it makes sense and these patterns established, then it's it's easy. Um, and I'd say that's a pretty accurate interpretation. Uh, as far as the U.S. dollar versus Bitcoin, I do think Bitcoin has the potential to one day become um, some sort of global reserve or just some some cryptocurrency in general. Um, what people are not taking into account is how long this is going to take due to something called Gresham's Law. Um, are you familiar with that at all? No, I'm not. Tell me about it. 
So Gresham's law is uh, a law that suggests that people use the crummier currency as a medium of exchange if they can. Um, and it's it's amazing all the different uh, historical uh, examples of this. My favorite one to talk about is um, an economist uh, during World War II was held at a German prisoner of war camp and they established an economy with cigarettes. Um, and eventually Gresham's law happened and people were using uh, hand rolled cigarettes as the medium of exchange versus branded cigarettes, right? They wanted to keep the branded cigarettes because mm. those ones were nice and better to smoke. And then they were trading the, the tobacco that they rolled up themselves in paper as the medium of exchange, right? Prime example yep. of Gresham's law. Um, so if you believe that the US dollar is a worse currency than Bitcoin, which I would agree because it, you know it's, it's subject to inflation and quantitative easing and manipulation and we've seen this take place over history for decades, people are still going to use it as a medium of exchange for as long as it's an accepted medium of exchange, which could be decades from now, right? Yeah. So people say that the crypto enthusiasts have boxed, them, boxed themselves into Bitcoin being a store of value, treating it more like gold than the US dollar. It's not, not that we boxed ourselves in, it's that economics would suggest that people are much more likely to use the currency that they value less as a medium of exchange for as long as they can, right? Yeah. Um, so as far as Bitcoin becoming the global reserve, um, you know, hopeful and optimistic on that one day becoming a reality, but uh, I'm definitely, um, you know, not waiting for that to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. Great store of value though. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting. What was that called again? I'm actually going to put this down in my notes because I want to yep. read up on that. Gresh, one. Gresham's Law is what it's called. G R E S H A M S. Okay, thank you. That's a uh, that's pretty interesting. And when you think about it, it, it makes it makes total sense that you would want to. You know, if you've got some gold and you've got some and you've got some dollars you're not exactly trying to spend the gold. You want to hold the gold and you're, and you're spending the dollars. You don't want to hold, hold that, that USD. You, you want to hold the gold because you think it's going to be more valuable over time. That's uh, it, it sounds a lot like, so I had someone on the show last week, I believe that had started uh, his own coin called Tusk. And what he was saying that this was meant to be an actual mode of payment and that Bitcoin was not meant to be an actual mode of payment because people were just going to hold on to it. And it was going to be a really long time before anyone was actually going to be spending Bitcoin. And so he was trying to, uh, he's trying to create one that is uh, an actual mode of payment, which is pretty interesting. So um, what do you think about, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the monetary policy that's going on. We had a big, uh, big Fed meeting, and Jerome Powell's out there speaking today. I don't know if you saw anything from it yet, but of course, we're going to continue the course with our same policy, the same low interest rates that we have right now. The inflation, this is not going to be long term. This is just here for right now. Um, what do you, what do you think about the the short term, long term outlook on this? Are we heading into a really dark? period when it comes to our money or is it just gonna continue like it always has nice and steadily yeah. so powell definitely plays the politician role uh more than he plays the uh you know banker economist role in my opinion um you know he keeps saying inflation's transitory and that we're not going to be dealing with it for super long and um every single one of his projections has failed by by 
huge margins if we're talking inflation, right? Um, I think what 2% average target for inflation and CPI was roughly what we were looking at. And uh, last I had checked were 7% and about 5% um, yeah. for, for each respectively, way above target. Um, and I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon because of the fact that we're not raising our interest rates anytime soon. Um, now, what this means for the stock market and the cryptocurrency market, it's tough to identify. Um, one thing that I will say in defense of Powell's stance that everybody needs to consider is the idea of technological deflation battling inflation, right? So our productivity as human beings has increased such an astronomically high amount over the past three decades, it's hardly even conceivable to do what we're doing right now, right? Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, you needed a multi-million dollar news station, you know, a, a camera crew, a studio, a place that's willing to air your content, et cetera, et cetera. Multi-million dollar operation, if not more. Um, and right now, you know, I have my I mean, a couple hundred bucks into my setup, sure, and, and I'm sure you have maybe a little bit more than me, but relatively speaking, the fact that we're doing this right now is being done at an astronomically lower cost than it would have taken 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. That battles inflation um, much more than people are willing to give it credit for, but there's 100% a limit to that, right? Um, so that's why you see a 30% increase in our money supply, but maybe a 7% increase in inflation, right? So... Um, we're just kind of, you know, spitballing, guesstimating here, but you can kind of say, okay, the, the productivity increases and that stuff can kind of swallow some of that, that increase in the monetary supply. What this does do, though, is increases uh, wealth inequality. Um, from my perspective, um, I'd say uh, people that support modern monetary theory might disagree with that. But I think if you just do the thought experiment, it makes a lot of sense. During times of low interest rates, people that don't have a lot of money are going into debt and then spending the economic recovery trying to claw out of that debt. Um, people with money to throw around usually take advantage of those low interest rates to invest, get assets, et cetera, mm -hmm. and then they spend that economic recovery reaping the rewards of those investments, right? Uh, you repeat that pattern enough time, it has a compounding effect. And, uh, you know, wealth inequality since 1971, when we really started to adapt this quantitative easing monetary policy model, is when we really started to see um, wealth inequality skyrocket, pay not keep up with productivity, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it's it's not sustainable, and I think for that reason, again, great argument for cryptocurrency in the long term. Fix supply, lots of different options on what you want to use as your medium of exchange. Um, decentralized, you know, no major players to really fully manipulate it. So uh, I'm hoping optimistically that that will solve that problem over time. I wish that uh, you know we talked a little bit beforehand about how a lot of uh, a lot of libertarian people that you know you know that they've gotten into some trading or maybe they do other things to build their wealth one thing i want to see is more people working on ways to build their own personal wealth because the problem that you have whether you give you give the money to the people at the top so you can help support their businesses in the time that you've shut down their businesses or do you give the money to the people at the bottom so they can pay their bills regardless the money still is going to flow towards the top and if you're if you're not if you're not working on building your wealth 
just simply cutting people checks, well, all they do is they then take that money and then they give it to the people that are at the top afterwards. And so if you don't actually spend any time building your wealth, all you did, it, you're still just giving it to the people who who are, I would say, I, I don't want to say productive, but um, yeah, I mean, the people that, that own most of the productivity, most of the businesses, things like that, those are the ones that are going to get it regardless. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing with that, too, is, you know, uh, on top of cutting checks, right, like people during this time had, you know, much higher demand for Amazon products because they couldn't go outside and grocery shop or they maybe didn't want to and stuff. So on top of the fact that they just have like much more mobility and acquiring new assets and, and you know, stimulus, they also have that lower half uh, paying them. Um, mm -hmm. you know, for, for their goods and services and stuff. And obviously, yeah, that productivity should be rewarded, but that's going to have a, a massive effect. And I think, uh, you know, economics is also a study of incentives, right? What, what incentives does certain policies create? Right. And I'd say COVID plus monetary policy created a lot of incentives for people to give most of their money to larger corporations rather than small businesses. Well, right? yeah. If you can't, if you literally can't shop at the small businesses and you still need all the things. If you still want all the things that you wanted beforehand, you're going to go to Walmart and Amazon and, and Home Depot and all of that to get, to get your goods. It's one of the really interesting and frustrating things I see about people uh, who um, don't like the big corporations and don't like the wealth inequality, but then you, you don't see that the policy over the last year was absolutely going to drastically lead to more wealth inequality when you only allow the people with the big businesses to still be open. <laughs> right. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that I always say, too, is, is taxation isn't the solution to this. It's not even close to the solution to this. And and the one argument that I that I always say that stops that discussion dead in its tracks is if you taxed every single billionaire in the United States at 100 percent and not just their yearly income, their entire net worth, if you took everything that they've ever earned um, throughout their entire lives on this planet, they still hold today, it would equal, I think, like $3 trillion, $3.5 trillion maybe after COVID, right? Our budget each year is usually 4 to $5 trillion, right? So we'd effectively fund the government for, you know, maybe half a year, nine months, if we're lucky, with by stealing all of the productivity that the, you know, billionaire class, you know, has created or whatever. And, well, and that's and how much they've created throughout time. That's not what they create every year. That is the correct. total accumulation of all of those people that are at the top. So it's not as if next year you would just be able to tax another 3.5 trillion out of them again. That's all the accumulation. Correct. And, and that's really the point that I try to drive home is that taxation isn't a solution to this. If you are, you know, constantly printing money and spending significantly more money than you, you know, tax and print, right? It's just, it's an equation that you really need to focus on lowering spending and being more fiscally responsible before you look to just tax additional you know, find additional sources of taxation. Um, so I think that's super important. Um, and not to say that I'm like outright, you know, against uh, billionaires probably pitching a little bit more into the economic pie, but I think this, you know, entire idea of tax the rich and eat the rich is, is super silly because it really doesn't solve the problem mathematically. 
No, and you talked a little bit about incentives, and uh, if you're going to if you're going to take all of it, which I know that I guess we're strawmanning right now because there's only there's a very small amount of people arguing that we should take all of it. Uh, but uh, if you were going to take even a, a very large percentage of it, say sixty percent, I've heard plenty of people say say things like sixty percent. So if you're going to do that, you're removing the incentive also to accumulate. You're you're removing the incentive to to risk any money. I've seen a lot of people. People say, well, after your first hundred million or even a billion, then everything should be taken after that. Well, think about what they had to do to continue making money, to continue accumulating that wealth after that. They had to keep providing value in society to keep accumulating that. Well, once you hit whatever that threshold is, what's your incentive to continue providing value after that? And so you lose right. all of that value that was that was given to the – we decided that it was valuable enough for us to use our money and, and hand it over to them. And you just remove all of that from the society. And I feel like I've heard – I feel like I've seen this play out before in other societies over time. Yeah, and you know, and uh, in reference to the, the straw man argument, I use that example just to paint the picture that the math doesn't compute. Right? Oh yeah, I understand yeah. that not everybody can take it too. everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd say the other thing with that too is that when it comes to incentive, like we saw that played out this past year, right? We we gave a lot of stimulus this past year, be it the unemployment, the actual stimulus checks, the the rent relief, the business relief. Cool. You, you did the, the whole Keynesian model of, of solving the demand side of the equation. There's plenty of money there. The demand side's there. Problem is, is that if people aren't making things, that doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have all the money in the world and nothing to buy or few things to buy at a significantly higher price than they were before. Um, you know, it's it, if you tried to buy ammo this year, it was easily twice as expensive as it was prior, if not more. Our gas prices are crazy, lumber, steel, right? And it's because people aren't producing and supplying those things at the rate that people have demand for them. And, you know, again, uh, just the, the basic rules of economics would suggest that that was a pretty predictable outcome. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I don't totally hate the idea of, you know, putting money in people's hands after you just force them out of business for, you know, six, eight, 12 months, depending on where you're living. But you also need people making stuff to go spend that money on. And that's a super important part of that equation. Well, that's the uh, that's the great argument, really. The when you think about Keynesianism, you people that want to incentivize the consumption, there's a chicken or egg scenario here, and you have to ask which one came came first. If you started from nothing and you had 100 people and you just gave them all money, well, what would they do with the money? There would be nothing for them to do. Uh, but if you were going to incentivize the productive side, well, when they do that, well, they're also going to have to pay people to help them produce those things, and they're producing things, and those people that they're paying can then turn around and use that to buy products from other people. So if you just start, if you just start from the bottom right there, uh, you can see which one needs to happen first. And I say incentivized, I don't really mean the government needs to uh, fork money over to incentivize production, but if they were going to incentivize either one of them, I would rather them incentivize production. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and profit is enough of an incentive for most people to, to put labor towards something. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, studying um, economics pretty extensively, and I, I'd say I, I belong much more in the Austrian school basket than anything else. Um, but I would say that, you know, Keynes didn't get it all wrong with his suggestion that, you know, People need the confidence to have money to go out and buy stuff to kind of kickstart that economy. That's great. Um, I, I 
don't, and you know, and that's where you kind of get the term, well, in the long run, we're all dead because he didn't really have an answer of what that does as far as sustainability in the long term. What I'm personally really interested in that no, you know, uh, cryptocurrency developers, I think, have really focused in on from what I can tell. So if you're a cryptocurrency developer listening to this, maybe I'm giving you a business idea, um, is this idea of potential uh, quantitative easing in very specific parts of markets during recessions. And then because cryptocurrency, you know, by design has a lot more flexibility, maybe reducing that supply throughout the recovery. Um, so the equivalent to this, you know, in a central banking term would be you have your 2008 housing market crash. What if you had a specific currency that the housing market was built on and you only participated in some form of quantitative easing for that market throughout the recovery and then started doing more quantitative hardening as the recovery became more, uh, you know, legitimate, sustainable, right? Because our housing market recovered and it's recovered to heights that we've never seen before, especially the past couple of years due to all the supply shortages, yada, yada. Um, I'm curious to see what that would look like. If you focus on one market, adapt the Keynesian model and actually reduce the supply, like Keynes said you would have to after that recovery happens, what would that look like? Um, so with all these different cryptocurrencies out there serving all these different types of use cases and markets, I would be curious to see what that looks like. That's a, that's actually a pretty genius idea. And I, I hope that that, I, I hope some people do that, uh, because the idea of actually being able to control that supply of money in only one sector is, uh, yeah, that, that I like it. I'm a fan. And of course, Keynes, I believe uh, the way that he would control the supply would be by taxing that back out of the economy, right? The, that would be the, the main way that you would do that. And uh, the issue is the, when you tax it back out of the economy, from what I can tell, uh, it's not as if the government's just going to take those taxes and then put them under their mattress and not use it anymore after that. They're just going to find something to spend it on. So it still gets spent back out in the economy afterwards. Yeah, right. And, you know, I think uh, one way to do that, um, Bitcoin obviously has a difficulty adjustment for mining, where if you try harder to mine Bitcoin, it uh, becomes harder to find. And if less people are trying to mine Bitcoin, it becomes easier to find. And this is how we kind of keep our mining rates uh, somewhat consistent um, and the profit incentive there to some degree. Um, so I think this, you know, reduction of supply rather than through taxation, you could achieve through either some sort of difficulty adjustment or some kind of ratio uh, that's, you know, uh, connected to a time frame where X amount of times after the or X amount of time elapses after the supply increases, it would then start to gradually decrease again. Um, I haven't figured out the perfect logistics of it yet, um, but I think it's an idea that more people in this crypto space should be playing with because of the fact that having you know, a decentralized way to um, aid, you know, uh, recovering or, or failing markets rather um, would be interesting to see. Um, and not saying, you know, there might be consequences to that that I'm not aware of, um, but I do think it's an interesting idea. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a bunch of cryptos out there that are just selling dog money to people. So might as well try to experiment <laughs> and see if we could find something a little more legitimate than that. One of the, uh, and I, I know we're not just talking about it in the last year, but uh, it sparks up in my mind. One of the interesting things about the, the crash last year that happened um, and all the policy that's happened after that is that it wasn't exactly that it was a failing market. And this is what I was telling people in 
in our class was that I the crash that was happening I didn't I didn't believe it and I thought that we would have a lot faster recovery. Of course, I've gloated a few times because on the podcast I called the bottom I, I called the bottom of the of the crash by within 200 points on the Dow, I believe, and said that it was gonna that it was gonna reverse back up. And that's because uh, we didn't have a market. We didn't have a lot of businesses whose business models were failing that had too much debt that they were that they were going under. We had businesses that were shut down and couldn't do any business that that, that were shut down by the government. And so while the market was crashing and these businesses were having a hard time, as soon as the government can take the restraints off, it should go back to where it used to be, or a lot of them should, as long as they were pretty healthy. And, uh, and, and so I think that there's a lot, there's a bit of a difference with what happened last year than say with what happened in 2008, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we could say that, you know, uh, perverse incentives, uh, with, with government policy even caused 2008 in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, the Austrian school kind of suggests that there's this thing of malinvestment that occurs when you participate in this type of monetary policy uh, that, that we're participating in where, you know, people start allocating resources towards something that they think will be more valuable in the future, but they're blinded by the amount of currency that's floating around, right? It's much more difficult to assess the value of things because currency is too fluid. And then you don't see the consequences of that until um, the next recession happens and the rug pull happens that much harder. Um, so, you know, Mises pretty much said it, it's or I, maybe it was Rothbard, but, you know, referred to it as like an opiate to a degree where you're you're kind of, you know, you're you might be like doing cocaine for your market and that'll keep you chugging just to get through that hard time. But you can't keep doing that and you can't keep dosing higher or else that you're going to you're going to burn out that much harder uh, when that time comes. And I think that's something that we need to be very cautious of uh, as investors as well right now. Um, it's it's not hard to look at the trajectory of uh, the way asset prices have increased and think, hmm, might be something a little fishy going on here. Uh, now, the thing is, is that I, I, I foresee a melt up rather than a meltdown. We might see a catastrophic crash, but it, the Fed's just going to do what the Fed's been doing and start printing money. So I think asset prices will continue to increase in the long term, uh, but the value might not be trapped there the way that we think. Um, I read something pretty shocking uh, about six months ago saying that uh, about 80% of publicly traded stocks are not actively turning profits quarter over mm -hmm. quarter. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a red flag right there, yeah. right? The fact that that we're investing in things and those those assets from a stock market perspective, they're, they're increasing and increasing, but they're not posting the earnings or the profits that you would expect them to, to me is saying, might be in a bubble. <laughs> yeah, but everything's a bubble. What do you do with that information? If everything is doing that, where do you allocate your resources? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to do. I mean, you you could have a company like, uh, well, just think, uh, maybe they're not there yet. Think about Tesla, you know, they didn't turn profit for a long time. And now uh, they've gotten to the point where they are profitable. You have uh, companies like Uber that that haven't turned any profit. I think they're, uh, they might have just posted a profit or they're projecting for the first time that they might post a profit, but it's a $40 billion company. 
but they haven't posted any profit. So how do you even calculate what your investment is? I guess, it, you know, it should be somewhere around zero dollars, but you're, it's really a lot of speculation that's happening right now, especially right. when you're throwing all this money into the market and you have a lot of uh, new traders coming in and, and, we just care if it's going to go up uh, in the next couple weeks or in the next day or so. You know, I don't really care with a, whether or not Uber posts profit. I care whether or not their stock's going to go up. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, you know, both crypto market and stock market alike right now, we're seeing that, right? I mean, the GameStop short squeezes, mm -hmm. we're, we're on like our third one of those this year. That's a prime example, right? Yeah. That, that um, I can see Tesla and Uber because I think that the value they're creating is pretty tangibly visible, right? Tesla's making cars that people have high demand for that they can't even deliver them, you know, uh six months late, let alone on time. Yeah. Um, and Uber, I'd say probably, you know, everybody who's traveled has used Uber at some point or another in the United yeah. States. So their value there is pretty obvious to see that it's like, okay, they're not posting a profit, but this concept's important. And a lot of people have value for it. So that's good. But then there's, you know, a million other stocks out there like GameStop, for example, which is clearly a failing business and has done absolutely nothing to suggest that they're not going to be a failing business in the future. It's a brick and mortar gaming yeah. uh, store, retail store in a time where I can download any game I want right now um, on the computer as we have this conversation and it will be good to go and ready for me to play by the time that we finish the conversation. Um, and so far, I have not seen GameStop at develop any models that suggest that they can reverse course on that. So why is their stock price appreciating at ridiculous levels in very short time frames? It's because people are like, oh, this is a game. Let's jack the price up and have some fun big line go up. Um, you, <laughs> so, you, uh, you mispronounced something. It's called a stonk price. That's actually, oh, my bad. Yes, it's a stonk <laughs> price. Yeah, we got to make sure that we right. get that. We and get we're that not right. investing. We're YOLOing. That's right. right. Yeah, you got to hold. <laughs> just hold them, man. I, I hear a lot of anti-hold right now, and you just got to you just got to hold. So right. um, I'm, I'm fudding everything by, by letting uh, people know of the, uh, you're the risks. You're just FUD all over here. You've been sent in by this is nothing but a, the big shorts coming. The people that are short, you're, you've been sent in by them right now to spread FUD. That's it. That's all this is. Yeah. Um, one thing I was uh, wondering about was, so you're, you, it sounds like you're, you're into a lot of what I would call like practical economics and then the, the Austrian economics, which is where I am also. But then I also realized that we can't exactly just go to the Austrian school of economics right now uh, without uh, destroying the whole system. And I think we'd actually go through a long period of time that a lot of us would not enjoy if we were to switch away from that, uh, away from that system. Now, I think that would be a much better long-term system. But what I want to know is, do you, do you follow the Austrian school, but then think that there might be some things that we do that are actually necessary? Um, it's, it's tough. Um, and this is actually a qualm that I have with the, the Liberty movement in general. I consider myself, uh, leagues more pragmatic than people that I've, I've worked with, um, in the past. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of outgrew my anarchy capitalist phase in high school and I kind of slot myself as like a, a classical liberal of sorts. Um, and it's just because of the fact that right now we are in an area where, yeah, if we go full Austrian school right now, it's causing something worse than the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
uh, the Liberty Movement's messaging uh, is really, really bad um, for the masses and for the most part. Um, and I know a lot of libertarians have this issue, right? We're focusing on the wrong things that people don't necessarily care about a lot of the times, um, either in general or during election cycles. Like, um, ending, like ending the Fed. You know, I mentioned this uh, when we were talking to Dr. Jorgensen a few weeks ago when we talked to Austin I Peterson. I listened to that. It was, it was um, very cool. I mentioned it in both, and I noticed that both of them were a little hesitant to go along with what I was saying about uh, how maybe we don't need to just come in and end the Fed next year. And I, 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 what I hope is everyone will realize is that at heart, I think that we should end the Fed, that I think that it's, uh, that it's something that we don't need. But I also realize that it's here and it's been here for, uh, for over 100 years and we, we live in this system. And if you just pull the rug out from under the system next year, like you said just a second ago, we would have a collapse. We would go through a time worse than the Great Depression after that. Yeah, um, I think in general, like my perspective is don't end the Fed, compete with it and make it a mockery. Right. You Create yep. a system that's better and people will eventually adopt that system over the one that's worse. Um, and I think generally speaking, that should kind of be the approach of the liberty movement is why are you lobbying this institution that is the government that does everything wrong, that is incredibly inefficient, that is, you know, super unhelpful and actually getting the policies that you want to happen, happen. Um, why are you lobbying them to solve these problems for you? These, these radical problems, radical problems that I think need radical solutions 100%, but there's still things that you're going to have, you know, trouble getting the average person on board with. Um, I think your solution to that is really just to create systems that make mockery of that and and hopefully people will kind of see the light over time. Um, and, you know, and this is, I, I don't say, you know, I used to be huge on the whole like taxation is theft and end the Fed train. And I don't usually, you know, really adopt those, those taglines anymore because I think it turns people off to the movement rather than, you know, turns them onto it. And I, I personally value making small incremental changes that actually help people's lives rather than, you know, going gung-ho on our, our, you know, agorist or anarchist utopia that we're working towards um, because of the fact that it's just not realistic in our lifetimes, right? What, what's, what I've seen in my lifetime is that people's businesses have been shut down. Um, you know, police brutalities uh, absurdly high for a nation as developed as ours, things like that. And I'm much more concerned with making the changes that are necessary to keep people safe and keep their lives better than I am, you know, having some kind of ideological purity throughout the entire uh thing. Well, so. because uh, a lot of people in the liberty movement were great at talking to other libertarians and probably getting in fights with them about whether or not we're <laughs> actually libertarians and things like that. Uh, but we're not great at at uh, talking to people who have never been uh, who have never heard that message before. We're not great at, say, converting people or warming them up to our ideas. Like you said, when you say taxation is theft, uh, what people really hear is, well, how would I have police or firefighters or roads or anything like that? And now we, if we could have their attention for, say, uh, two weeks, maybe you could actually talk to them about how you would go uh, past that. But you're not going to have their attention for that long. You're going to have their attention for three to five seconds, probably. And then they're going to think that you're crazy and, and they're going to move on with their lives after that. You mentioned that you were a state, uh, state chair for Yale. And it's one of the reasons that we love YAL so much is because YAL has a lot of the same, I know a lot of the people at the organization 
and I know that they have the same views that we do, but they're actually concerned with getting things done and changing things incrementally. And while a lot of people, they just want all or nothing. Yeah, if, if you go to the Yale National Office, um, probably about half the people there are full on handicaps yeah, for the most yeah. part. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're playing the game and okay. Oh, you're playing the game. That's not as ideologically pure. Okay. Well, you know, there's thousands, if not millions of kids that have free speech on campus because of Yale. Um, there's people that we've gotten elected that are actually standing for the policies that we want them to stand for because we played the game. Um, and I'm proud of those things, right? Because they made a legitimate change in someone's life that made their life freer and better. And I thought that's what we were supposed to be working towards, you know, with as this movement yeah. is, is making yeah. people's lives more free. Um, so personally, yeah, I think I think the liberty movement, it's great that we have our, our purities to a degree. Um, but I also think that you need to, you know, put things in context of this world that we're living in that's growing increasingly authoritarian and say, okay, how do we at least slow this down or, you know, retract some of these author yeah. authoritarian policies? Well, we need to, we need to have, we need the purity. We need to know what our goals are and what our principles are, but you also have to have a strategy for how you would actually achieve that sometime. And you have to realize that it took us a hundred years to get to where we are right now. Well, it's probably more than that, uh, but it's going to take that long or more to get to the world that we want. It's not just going to happen overnight. And actually, it honestly shouldn't happen overnight. It wouldn't be able to happen overnight because you would end up creating a really terrible situation that none of us would want. And I was going to say, by the way, we keep saying, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, that's Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, I don't think we said that yet, but I just, if, if anyone's like, what's YAL? I don't know what, I don't know what YAL is. YALiberty.org, I believe is their website. So just so everyone knows, we've been big uh, supporters of theirs for a long time. So um, that's awesome to hear it. I'm sure that, you know, they appreciate your support. We appreciate your support, even though I'm, I'm removed from the organization <laughs> at this point. Um, one, one final example that I wanted to use on this too is, um, which I think this was a discussion you had with a previous guest that I was listening to, um, you know, rather than adopting all cops are bad last mm -hmm. year, we could talk about civil asset forfeiture and qualified immunity. Yeah. And regardless of what side of the fence that you're on, right. I've, I've had discussions with my, you know, more right-wing family members. I've had discussions with my more left-wing friends at college, right. You talk about civil asset forfeiture and qualified immunity and let them know what those policies actually do for law enforcement. It's a pretty easy sell, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're focused on hashtags and things like that, those things don't really pan over as well. And they sow the vision more than anything else. Um, so I just, that's my favorite example just from this past year of like, wow, we had a great opportunity here to really make something happen. And I think every bill that that was substantial, unfortunately died in Congress. Uh, I don't even think it made it to the floor actually. Yeah. Which what, is very unfortunate. What I want to see is focus on is decreasing. I think I was talking about this um, actually yesterday, yesterday's episode with someone, but decreasing the police interactions uh, is the uh, because you can look at the numbers and uh, probably a very small percentage of police uh, do bad things and uh, and so that I, it's not fair to just say that they're all that they're all terrible. What you actually would want to do is uh, if people do bad things, that's something that you should take care of. We could talk a little bit about police unions uh, and qualified immunity when it comes to that. But you also want to decrease the interactions that people have with police by getting rid of some of the ridiculous laws that they're trying to enforce all the time. Civil asset forfeiture, 
going back to incentives, creates a very big incentive for police to search someone and see what they could potentially go home with or take back to the station. And a lot of people don't know what that is at all. We're getting closer to being able to have just a common conversations about legalizing marijuana or decriminalizing, whatever it is. So we can, uh, a lot of times when cops pull people over, they're trying to find something else. So I've always called it fishing. When they, I think cops are consistent, just constantly fishing for things uh, that they can find. And so we have to decrease the amount of things that they're fishing for so we can decrease the amount of interactions. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you framed it perfectly there. Um, and you know, when people hear that, like cops seize more property on a yearly basis than thieves take property, right? That's pretty shocking. Yeah. Do people deserve to have their property seized by law enforcement more often than they are likely to be had it stolen from them by, by a criminal? I think that that shows pretty, you know, blatantly that there's some perverse incentives going on and that we maybe need to reassess how we go about uh, you know, going through those things in, in a system. Um, and I, I think another crazy stat with that is like 90% plus of those go uncontested. It's very hard to get your property back after mm-hmm. it is seized. Um, so yeah, again, anybody, you know, that's hearing that for the first time right now might be, Hmm, that might warrant a policy change. Well, you have that to conversation prove- doesn't happen without a cab or, you know, or with a cab or something like yeah. that, you know? It- you have to prove that you're innocent after that. I mean, they, they don't have to prove guilt. You're not innocent until proven guilty. It's the other way around. And there should be a lot of people on the right should be able to get behind that really well. What's It's always weird because um, I feel like you hear a lot of talk about innocent until proven guilty, it, unless it comes to what the police do sometimes. It's it's really weird because you if you say anything negative, well, that means you don't support the police. It's like supporting the troops kind of thing. You got you to gotta say these specific things, and you can't say anything negative about it. It's such a weird thing because people on the right want a smaller government, but they're so supportive of the enforcement arm of the government. And people on the left want a bigger government, but they're not supportive of the enforcement arm of the government. It's a really, really weird Thing going on yeah absolutely um but you know uh, I, I at the same time i'm very optimistic um for what the future holds with the liberty movement i think it's done nothing but grow and i think that it's matured a lot um from you know those early stages of of you know i'd say kind of this this movement's been birthed by ron paul's 2008 run Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's turned into something much bigger and much more legitimate than that. So we just, you know, got to hope that momentum keeps going and that, you know, um, maybe the neck beards aren't the one leading the conversations. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I hope so. You know, um, that, that's another, that, another thing I love about Yao, by the way, is that you, there was a dress code at their, at their events, you know, and one of the things in the code is that you had that clothes on. And so that, <laughs> that was really important as far as a big gathering of libertarians go. That's a step in the right direction. Yeah, um, as much as I love Spike, I, I don't. I don't want people following in his footsteps of uh, shirtless interviews. <laughs> I know, I know. I uh, every time we've talked to him, I've wanted to ask him about the whole Nipplegate thing. And I, from what I can kind of, we talked about it a little bit um, beforehand one time. And what I can kind of tell is that I think he, uh, I think he kind of wants to put that behind him a little bit. So sorry for mentioning it on the podcast. I did mention the nipple. But um, uh, before we get off here, uh, I want you to tell everyone about your music, what you're doing with that real quick, where they could go to find you and keep up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as far as uh, professional pages go, uh, my name is John Volkwell, 
J-O-N-V-O-K-A-L. Uh, Facebook and Instagram are easy places to find me, and I'm totally happy with whoever following me on there. And there you will see me promoting basically two things. Uh, my music, uh, I'm in a band called Blank Slate. Um, right now we're, we're a little less active, but I'm sure it'll get rolling again. And uh, two, my economic and financial you know, research and activities there. So um, I'm going to be creating a lot more content in that sense. Um, you know, I'm finishing up a master's degree at George Mason. So just follow me there. Keep up with what's going on. And hopefully you find some information or entertainment or both that you will find useful. And uh, Nate, just wanted to say uh, thanks a lot. I uh, really appreciate you having me on.